This is an ABC podcast. Admiral Chris Barry was Chief of the Australian Defence Force from 1998 to 2002. So he was in the role when 9-11 happened and he oversaw the first deployment of Australian troops into Afghanistan. Chris's stint as Defence Force Chief was the culmination of his 41 years service in the Navy, including active duty in the Vietnam War. Given all that, it might surprise you that Admiral Barry is now a strong advocate for the medical use of psychedelic drugs. MDMA, better known as ecstasy or molly, and psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And that's because Chris knows a lot of veterans with PTSD, and it's the potential of psychedelics to treat PTSD when nothing else is working that has him pushing for a change in how those drugs are classified in Australia. Hi, Chris. Hi, Sarah. Let's go back to your beginning. Where did you spend your childhood, Chris? I should start by saying that my dad worked for the Bank of New South Wales. And so the real answer to this question is New South Wales. I grew up as a a small child, uh, an infant, if you like, in Junee. And then after leaving Junee, we went to Balranald. And uh, following a a short stint in Balranald, we then moved back up to Sydney And we lived in Dundas in the first time back in Sydney and then moved to Normanhurst before I joined the Navy. I didn't appreciate that was going to be such an involved answer, Chris. Well, of course, it's always fascinating to me when people talk about having to lift and shift and move to new locations. Uh, And for a long time in my naval career, I thought it was just a Navy issue. But on reflection, that was actually my life. So... Whether I was uh, at a primary school in Balround with a lot of Aboriginal boys, uh, we were really good at catching spiders in the playground, (laughs) or going to the uh, primary school in Gordon in Sydney when I was living with my great aunt, or in Junee where as as a kindergarten kid... I had the most wonderful teacher in the whole world. (laughs) I knew it at the time, and I still remember her. Um, She was Miss Much, and uh, uh, Miss Much still stands in my memory as, you know, one of those teachers that really does make a difference in your life. What was so special about Miss Much? I think she was a good educator, but it was a home away from home, and in many ways she looked after uh, uh, the flock if you like, of uh, kindergarten kids. I don't remember how many we were in the class, but we weren't a lot. And uh, we, I think we all felt that she was rather special in our lives. So growing up, Chris, did you always dream of being the military? Is that your, was that what you wanted to do right from the start? Oh, no. The real truth is that um, I was going to be a brain surgeon. And uh, that was my career choice for... I'm going to say about five or six years. Why? Well, what, what, how have. did you even know about brain surgery? That seems not a, not that's not like being an astronaut or a or a cricket player. Why a brain surgeon? Well, it's an, it's another reflective question. I was an avid reader as a kid. I I read everything, and I was very intrigued and very curious about how human brains work, and I knew about the basic ideas of brain surgery, uh, not to any technical extent, but enough to know that it changed people's lives. And ordinarily, 
people who needed brain surgery were in serious trouble. Uh, so I think as I, as I look at it now, it was firstly the curiosity, secondly, a technical expertise and science, and thirdly, trying to make people's lives better. And frankly, uh, that's where I still am. So why am I not talking to retired surgeon rather than retired naval officer? What changed you from this path? Well, it was the result of going to my high school in Sydney. And um, we were taken off when I was in the second year there to see a movie called The Battle of the River Plate. And the reason we went to see it was Peter Finch, who was one of the starring actors, was an old boy of our school. So we went along to the State Theatre in Sydney and we watched this movie. It was in black and white. Uh, and it described really the first naval action, if you could call it that, of the Second World War, which ended up with the sinking of the Graf's Bay in the waters of Montevideo. Well, <laughs> it made a huge impression on me. And uh, I remember sort of going home afterwards uh, and saying to my parents, you know, I think I'm going to change my mind. I think I would like to join the Navy. I would like to be out there doing that kind of work. It looked thrilling. It looked adventurous. The whole story of, of that event was uh, fascinating. And I thought... Rather than being a brain surgeon, maybe I'd like to be a part of that. What did and your, so your mum and dad think of that idea? Well, my dad hated it. Uh, he was absolutely convinced it was the worst decision I could make in my life. And he spent following 18 months bringing home people who'd been thrown out of the Navy at the age of 40 or, <laughs> or whatever, uh, determined to convince me this wasn't going to work. Was he worried um, about your safety or, or what would have... That would seem to be a fine, upstanding career for a young man. What was your dad opposed to? Uh, look, I think my dad wanted me to join him in the joining the bank. I think he, for all sorts of reasons, which, which I do appreciate, being in the Bank of New South Wales was um, a job that offered great security uh, in the Second World War. All those men who went off overseas retained their positions in the bank. I think the bank helped my folks when my mum had polio and encephalitis and um, ran up against huge health costs. And I think he, he was born of being risk-averse. Uh, I think uh, he, he wanted me to follow him in the bank. And here I was dreaming about something absolutely the opposite. And do you know what, Sarah? I was still determined not to follow my dad into the bank Whatever. <laughs> Whatever it was. And what about your mum? What did she make of this new plan? Oh, well, she was, she was totally different. She was very excited by the idea. And uh, she once confided in me that, you know, when she was pregnant, uh, one of her delights was to take a manly ferry and go across to Manly from Circular Quay and think to herself, you know, maybe this child would like to go to sea sometime. <laughs> so so she, you can imagine what it. this set up in, in my household. <laughs> oh, I can indeed. How was it resolved? Um, my dad eventually capitulated, and that was important because he had to sign the apprenticeship papers for me to join the Navy because, you know, I was a 15-year-old or 15-and-a-half-year-old when I joined, and that meant he had to sign me over. You, you were sent off to the Navy or you sent yourself off to the Navy at 15? That's so young. Well, it didn't seem so young in those days because up till three years earlier, they used to take 13-year-olds. 
So, so what was the process once you, you got your dad to sign that form allowing you to go? What, what was involved? Well, I guess the uh, unresolved question is why was I the very last person to be chosen for an entry of 39 <laughs> oh, new <no>. cadet midshipmen? <laughs> Uh, I suspect I know the answer. I suspect I was not as academically bright as some of the others. But um, in the process of getting there, we had to go through a medical, uh, which determined that my eyes were only just good enough to join the Navy. We had to go to an interview, and that was um, a, a very stressful occasion and my memory is sitting in a room waiting to be interviewed, full of these peers who knew so much more about the Navy than me. I mean, they knew which ships the Navy had. They knew uh, what the process was for going to sea. Uh, a lot of them were sailors. And here was I, if you like, a country bumpkin just arrived in Sydney, now rocking up to be chosen. You knew the Peter Finch um, movie, Chris. That was I, your specialty. Uh, that's it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know uh, why why uh, I made the list and some of those folk didn't. But uh, when I arrived in the Naval College uh, on Australia Day in 1961, I did discover that everybody else in my group knew before Christmas uh, the previous year. I didn't. I was I was selected uh, with about a week to go. So somewhere about mid-January, I got a letter saying that you've been accepted and you better pack your bags, etc. How did that regimented, disciplined life suit the teenager, Chris Barry? Well, it was um, the first year, which is what I would regard as your indoctrination for two reasons. One as you say, uh, a highly disciplined environment. Uh, it had its little brutalities. Uh, we were able to be beaten across the backside with a gym shoe if we were really bad. And the other punishment that one could receive was to um, run round what was called the quarterdeck uh, several times. But looking back, um, I think they were building up your physical capacity Secondly, endurance was important, being able to put up with it all for a year before you'd be promoted to the next year up. And, uh, and thirdly, being able to survive the professional training on one hand, that sort of seamanship and, and the um, academic requirements, because the Naval College in those days graduated its um, cadet midshipmen to qualify, as I had to, for the University of London to do an engineering degree. Mm. And that meant that I had to do GCE A-levels and O-levels. And I ended up with more of these than I'd care, care to name. <laughs> but uh, uh, because I'd almost finished a leaving certificate in Sydney, I'd, you know, I had a double whack of some of that education. How quickly mm. into, into your training were you actually out at sea? Every opportunity was taken to expose the, the new officer cadets to... Um, uh, a, sh a ship. Um, so we were allowed to go to sea for one day um, in some new ships that the RAN had acquired. And another event was visiting an Indonesian sail training ship, the Derawuchi, which came to Jarvis Bay in my time there. Uh, and to go on board that and see a totally different Navy at work, um, uh, which was sort of a bit of an eye-opener for a 16-year-old. But... Um, 
but then in the third year of my training at Jarvis Bay, we went to sea for three months and that was when I learned, and we all did, uh, the whole process of being at sea, what it's like to be um, in a mess deck with uh, hammocks, <laughs> what it's like to scrub decks and chip and paint and um, do, a, do a trick down in engineering and uh, to do um, astronomics uh, and all sorts of things like that. And I thought it was wonderful. You thought it was wonderful. What, what, what about it was wonderful? It, um, I think it just reinforced for me the making of that earlier decision to chase this career. It felt right. It felt good. I wasn't a great star. I was one of those highly introverted people who uh, was never the one to step out in the front and say, well, I'm going to do this, that and the other. I, w- I would wait to take my cue. But on the other hand... I could appreciate that there are a lot of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to make things work, that you were part of a much bigger team, that those team members all had different skills and talents, and you you had a life under training to be very close to sailors, young sailors, which you would not do again, really. So, And, and it was fun. Hmm. It was a lot of fun. What about the ocean itself? Did you enjoy waking up and and seeing that first thing? Did you fall in love with the sea? Yes, there's no doubt about that. That became my profession as a qualified navigating officer. So my, you know, my professional qualification was about weather, the sea, taking stars, finding out where we were, taking ships from one port to another, making sure that we could navigate in places we'd never been before, and all those kinds of things. So I became very much attached to and very interested in um, the sea, all, all very interesting. It's, it's a fascinating medium. What happened, Chris, in your family in your second year at Naval College? Well, um, that was a very bad turn of uh, events for my family, although, you know, I, I was now on a parachute out, but uh, my mother separated from my father. I was the eldest of, uh, of five and... Uh, uh, and my mother committed suicide in uh, the end of 1962, uh, not in, not even in Sydney, up uh, up in northern New South Wales, and uh, that was a bit of a shock. Of course, it had all sorts of implications. Uh, in and in some ways, I'd say now I was the lucky one. I was the one who had had gone away, um, and I and I and I think the impact of all of that on my siblings. Uh, uh, They still bear some of those scars even today. Who gave you that terrible news, Chris? Yeah, I think the the commanding officer at um, HMAS Creswell or or the captain of the Naval College. Uh, I think I was sent for. Uh, I was uh, told about the news and put on a train and sent back to home. What did you find there? How was your dad and, and your younger siblings faring? Well, um, there was, because this was a distant event, I mean, um, family, the family itself, I think, was not sure about uh, anything. I think my dad was trying to cover up the news of what had happened. He he put round the story that this was not a suicide, it was a brain tumour and that's what happened as as a freak accident. But I think I knew enough about brains to know that that was probably very unlikely with no forewarning. 
and I think he 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 wrestled with whether to break the news or not. I don't think he ever really did cough up and say so. Um, I think we had to work it out for ourselves. So, yeah, I think it was um, a pretty sad turn of events for the family, but I was the lucky one. Did did the loss of your mum and the sort of secrecy and, and shame, I suppose, in the wake of that, did that make the Navy even more important to you? Did they become a kind of family? Do you know what? We used to talk about the naval family, and we still do. And that's that sense that once you've left home, you join a new cohort of friends and um, acquaintances, and imagine 13-year-olds joining the Navy or 15-year-olds joining the Navy, and uh, even, even today, we still talk about the idea that we are a family. And I think you're right. I, I think it was a pretty good substitute. Um, so again, maybe I was lucky, maybe I didn't have to work it all out for myself because, you know, the Navy did a lot of that too for me. Where were you based, Chris, in the lead up to Vietnam before you were sent off to the war there? Uh, firstly, you don't volunteer for those sorts of things in our Navy. Dying to a ship, you go where the ship goes. And, and the, uh, for me, I, I was lucky enough to be chosen to commission the third of our Charles F. Adams class, DDD class ships in Boston in, um, in the United States. And what does, sorry, about, excuse my ignorance, Chris, but what does that mean to, to commission a ship? What does that entail? Well, it's a little bit like moving into a brand new house, only much more exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's a big trip to Ikea to get that ship sorted uh, yeah, well, out. Well, <laughs> it's a huge trip to Ikea. And, um, uh, uh, and I've only ever done this once. But um, So I, I went to Washington, D.C. five months before we actually commissioned the ship. And we didn't step on board that ship until about five days before the commissioning ceremony. But uh, as part of my, what they call pre-commissioning training, and, you know, this was significant for our Navy of that day because these three ships were the first American designed and built ships that we acquired. And we were having to come out of a long tradition of having Royal Navy ships. New systems, new processes for training, um, new courses, new standards, all sorts of things. Do you know, when we commissioned that ship, we had a laundry on it which would do starched collars for our <laughs> white shirts. It didn't last very long, um, but that was the kind of standard the US Navy provided for its seagoing ships. We didn't have that in, in the British ships that I'd served in. But anyway, so commissioning that ship in Boston, and we commissioned it on the day that Harold Holt disappeared on Cheviot Beach. So... In Australia, there wasn't much news about our new ship, but there was a lot of news about Harold Holt. And it was cold. It was so, it was minus 10. Uh, you can imagine 350-odd Australians on a, on a commissioning parade in minus 10 degrees. We were frozen stiff, uh, but it was a great thrill. Uh, you go on board a new ship. You've got all these new systems. They're not like the ones you learned about in the classrooms over the previous couple of months. Uh, everything is, it smells new, it feels new, but there's a lot to be learned about your new ship. It was the second HMAS Brisbane. And is that the ship you then sailed into Vietnam? 
Yep. The day we commissioned that ship, we knew that in uh, just over a, a year, this ship would be going to Vietnam to take its place on the gun line following Perth and Hobart. So what's that role? What, what is it to be on the gun line? Well, uh, we had one main mission, really, which was to provide uh, naval gunfire support on the ground in Vietnam where our forces engage with the Viet Cong or to sanitise areas which um, they suspected Viet Cong camps were, which meant we, we actually fired quite a lot of ammunition. We were, we were firing on, on um, busy days. We were firing nearly 3,000-odd uh, um, rounds a day. Tell me about the conditions. What, what is it like? Uh, well, the ships were, uh, by our standards, they were, they were, they were pretty good. The five-inch guns that we had on that ship were supposed to be fully automatic, and that meant things used to break. And uh, it had a, a sort of loading system that meant it wasn't always people that were carrying the shells and the powder up to the gun house. But uh, uh, it was capable of firing, I think, around 40 rounds a minute, uh, five-inch shells, so, you know, quite a lot in those days. Uh, it kept us very busy because every time we fired a lot of ammunition, we had to go off and find a replenishment ship to get more ammunition, and that meant that uh, uh, we had to lift and shift all that ammunition into the magazines, and that required the off-watch crew to turn out and do that work. And, of course, over the period of our first period on the gun line, I think the crew became very, very tired because they were lacking a lot of sleep. Uh, and we had to, we had to actually redesign the way we ran the ship to stop people being catatonic at work. That was a great lesson for me as a young off. You know, I was the junior officer, basically. Um, it was a great lesson on how you have to deal with very tired people and what happens when they are tired. And what was the, the mood like? What was the, the sense among, among the men on board, given that physical exhaustion and the, the proximity to the front line? Were people scared? I don't think people were unduly scared. I think we were part of a good team. I think we were pretty confident about who we were and what we were doing. But on the other hand, uh, I, I was the officer of the watch when a, the, a shell went off in our gun and I owe my life to the quality of American armoured glass because there was a piece of shrapnel that was headed for my brain uh, and it was stopped about uh, six inches away by this armoured glass. When you look back at that, at that war and Australia's involvement in it, mm. what, what do you think about mm. it? Oh, look, when I was the Chief of Defence Force, I did an official visit to Vietnam. And, of course, by then, um, the stories of the war were, were long past. But uh, we had the privilege uh, being in Ho Chi Minh City of a, a dinner one night and my host was a Vietnamese general who had been responsible for the tunnel which came up in the middle of the US embassy and created all sorts of havoc for them. And over dinner, we got to talking about the war. He, he sort of said to me, you know, we Vietnamese understood there was a difference between you Australians and the Americans. And I said, so what was that about? And he said, uh, to put it bluntly, you Australians buried our dead. The Americans never did. 
And I thought, wow, that is quite a story, really, about the kinds of people we are. That we, we uh, despite the war, despite all of those stories about brutality and war, we were still burying their dead. I mean, that is, that is a fantastic piece of news. He went on to say, it's why we treat you people so differently. We have enormous respect for you Australians as a fighting force because of these things. We had no idea how ruthless the Vietnamese were in seeking to have their own national identity. That no amount of people like us going to Vietnam and trying to install a friendly regime was going to deter these people. And when you look at the history, that struggle in Vietnam goes well back into the 1930s. Uh, and here we were in the 1970s thinking we were going to change things uh, because we had the arrogance, I think, to assume that they would simply bow to our technology and our ability to deliver force on the ground and so on. But it, it, it didn't get inside their minds. They, they, they were committed nationalists. And all of that rhetoric we heard about dominoes and communism and all of these things um, sort of pales in comparison, I think, to that idea that we are a people... We want our own homeland and we're prepared to fight for it. Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to The Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Chris, following Vietnam, your career in the Navy continued and progressed all the way up to you being appointed Chief of the Australian Defence Forces in 1998. Where were you, Chris, on 9-11? Where were you when the the planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York. I was, I was having dinner in Perth, as it turned out, with an old colleague who had commissioned the Brisbane back in, in 1967 with me. And we were having dinner at his home in uh, Perth. And I had a call from the headquarters in Canberra saying, turn on the television. So I did. And uh, we saw the reporting after the first tower had been hit and we watched live the second tower. At that point, I knew there was something really wrong here, and I rang my team and said, I need to get back to Canberra as quickly as possible because the Prime Minister and a lot of the leadership, they were in, the, in Washington at the time, but my place was to be back in Canberra supporting the Deputy Prime Minister, and, and so we, we got back to Canberra by leaving Perth early the next morning. And what were you thinking, Chris? I mean, what, what's in the head of the Chief De of Defence Forces seeing those extraordinary scenes, those terrible scenes of planes flying into the Twin Towers? What, what's in your strategic mind? Firstly, this is not an accident. It's deliberate, and if it is deliberate, what does it mean? Is it starting a campaign 
of extraordinary violence against all of us, and by us I mean the Western democracies, because it was hard to conceive this would just be a one-off. Secondly, what are the appropriate things we should be doing to prepare ourselves for the possibility that there are more things to come? So we got back to Canberra immediately afterwards. We started conversations with our Prime Minister in Washington. And by then we knew about uh, all the events that had taken place in the US. Not much detail, but we knew about the events. Uh, And secondly, we saw those pictures coming out of Afghanistan and what had been going on with the training camps that Al-Qaeda had set up there. But uh, from... From my perspective, there are a number of things. Firstly, to raise the readiness and security on all our bases around the country. So that was step one. We did that. Secondly, I wrote to all the families in defence and told them to prepare themselves for the possibility that there might be threats to their personal security and they should start to think about simple steps like not taking the same route to school every morning and things like that. And thirdly, to remind some of our colleagues in Canberra that there was a great risk to them as well. Now, one of those involved going to the Parliament House and saying, what have you people done to secure the Parliament House? And the answer was nothing. And that was sort of several days after we'd lifted the readiness of defence bases around the country. But it was an unfolding time as, as each dawn we would be thinking about new things that required to be done. We were talking every day to our friends in Hawaii and in Washington about, you know, what, it, what is the security response now to these threats? What, what do the Americans, uh, what do we, what do the Brits, all of us, what are we going to be doing? They started talking about sending some special forces or special operations people into Afghanistan. And uh, 10 days after 9-11, I was flying from London into Washington on a British Airways flight. And um, about halfway across the Atlantic, my chief of staff came to me and said, so we've got a problem. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, the, the air hostess is supposed to be look, looking after us is a gibbering wreck in the galley. So we went, uh, left our seats, we went in the galley and this woman uh, was in serious meltdown. And it turned out she had been the victim of a hijacking about 18 months before 9-11. And the whole idea of flying into Washington to to the post 9-11 world, it just, I mean, she was just highly traumatised. So we contacted the aircraft captain and we told him what was going on and they made some other arrangements. But I thought, you know, it's just another example of how thinking through all the potential responses that people would have had over those 9-11 attacks, mm. you know, it was, it's unfathomable. And it was reinforced two weeks after that when I left uh, Washington, uh, and uh, I'll never forget as we f- we flew over Harbour Boulevard in Los Angeles, where I'd lived for a couple of years um, near the airport on the approach. There was not a car in sight. All the Americans were at home, waiting for the next big event, watching their televisions minute by minute. So it, it was a really, really stunning time to think about security and security measures and and. and the appropriate responses. What was it like personally, Chris? I mean, you're obviously doing all of this on a strategic level, working with government, working with our allies. What was your own headspace like in those weeks after the the attacks? Well, pretty pretty measured. 
What I've described is a very, I mean, for a, for a strategic person, um, a really, my words, exciting time because we didn't know how it was going to end up. And being a wargamer and thinking through scenarios and risk and all those kinds of things, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a driver to say, you've got to be on your mettle. This is, this is about your ability to shape good outcomes. And you, you've got to be on the front foot here. There's no point in being caught out by something that's a surprise if there's something you should do in advance. You retired in 2002 from that that role as Chief of the Defence Forces and, of course, Australian mm-hmm. troops continued to be sent into Afghanistan and then into Iraq. Yep. What were you hearing about the effects for veterans of participating in that conflict, that long war in the Middle East? Well... Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that three weeks after I retired, I was in Oxford in the UK and taking up an offer to work in Oxford University in the Strategic Leadership Program. And so I was there in the UK when when the Bush administration had decided it was definitely going to go in and do the job in Iraq and get rid of Saddam Hussein. In May of 2002... Uh, while I was Chief of the Defence Force, there was some word coming back to me that planning for a job in Iraq was taking place. But I could see no reason for a job to be done in Iraq based on what I read at the time or knew at the time. And so by the time we got to March 2003, I had to ask myself, what changed between July 2002 and March 2003? Well, the answer is not much. But at the time, uh, and of course well, I was a witness to Prime Minister Blair's efforts to try and persuade the British that uh, there was a job to be done in Iraq, there were all sorts of stories about weapons of mass destruction and, and so on and so forth. And here in Australia, the decision about Iraq was made by Prime Minister John Howard and off we went. So as things unfold, and I was looking back on it, people we sent in 2001 were back home within... Uh, a year job done, Al-Qaeda no longer is effective in Afghanistan. That job was done. But we started in March of 2003, conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq, which lasted and still lasts effectively until 2016, the longest war we've ever been involved in. And we ended up with the all-volunteer force. So neither the US, the UK nor us thought about conscription or national service or any scheme for getting more people into the defence organisation. And we relied on the same people to go back and do the tasks that governments had required. And that meant rotation. It meant that in some cases, our special forces guys, uh, some of them did up to 12 rotations in Afghanistan, slanted Iraq. That is longer than anyone served overseas in the First or Second World Wars. And by 2010, 2012, I was getting really concerned about what are the consequences of people going home to their families and saying, I'm going back. What do you, what do mum and kid, the kids say about that? It seemed to me we were starting to fiddle with their mental health. There were going to be huge mental health consequences coming out of all of these deployments. And I, I had in my mind, let's say that we had a repeat of the Hoddle Street massacre by some person whose 
mind had been badly affected by these deployments, what would we say to the community? And what would the story be? Uh, and that's why in 2013 I began looking at the question of post-traumatic stress disorder, initially in veterans, but uh, it wasn't very long before I realised there couldn't be more than about 70,000 veterans and serving people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet there were probably a million other people in Australia with similar mental health issues. So uh, that's become a driver for me for the last eight years, really, is trying to do something about post-traumatic stress disorder in the Australian community. As you say, Chris, it, it began with veterans, but it, it yeah. grew beyond that. What stories have you heard through your work with this organisation, Fearless, you established? What stories of, of PTSD have really brought home to you how serious and debilitating uh, reality PTSD is for people and, and their families? Yeah. My co-founder, he had a brother who had very bad post-traumatic stress disorder out of the Vietnam War and whose treatments ended his life early. So he was very committed. But we started to talk to people about the, the impact of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder on people. And initially we were on about military people, veterans and serving. Uh, but it wasn't long before we discovered every Australian we spoke to had a story about it. It was a story about friends, a story about themselves, a story about their family, or a story about someone who lived up the road, uh, or a story of somebody they knew about. But everybody we spoke to had a story. I went to see uh, my eye specialist to get my eyes tested, and this person said to me, so what are you doing now? I said, look, I'm on this post-traumatic stress disorder issue. Oh, my specialist said, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I looked at this person and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Tell me your story, I said. And I heard the story and there's no doubt that was post-traumatic stress disorder. And that person said, you know, I'm very lucky because I run my own business. If I feel the effects of the red haze coming on, I can take three or four days off and look after myself. I don't know how people who have jobs where they have to go to, like coppers, like train drivers, like truck drivers, like people who ordinarily go to work, how they go to work when their red haze is coming on. So that was an interesting perspective and to appreciate that it doesn't discriminate either by class or calling or gender or age. So we know from the United States statistics that in domestic violence situations, family violence situations, the children who are witnesses 100% will have post-traumatic stress disorder. And from that you can infer a circle of violence potentially where perpetrators, victims and witnesses all have post-traumatic stress disorder. You can find people who have lost their jobs and have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know trauma surgeons who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I also know people who treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder who also have post-traumatic stress disorder. But here is the really important gig. No one is born with it. 
it is an alteration of the neural pathways in the front lobes of the brain that creates the condition we know as PTSD. And it can now be diagnosed on complex MRI machines. And that is a physical infirmity like a broken leg. But the problem is we can fix a broken leg, but we don't yet know how to fix those neural pathways in your brain. What are some of the treatments, Chris, that are usually offered in Australia for people with PTSD, whether it's from serving in the military or from being in a car accident or or some other trauma in their lives? What's the standard treatment right now? The classic treatments, and I I, I have to qualify everything I say by saying I'm not a professional expert. I talk to professional experts, but I am not one. And I'm sure they would correct me. There There are the pills and potions treatments. Um, so we give you um, a dose of pills. You take them every day or maybe every second day. They are intended, I think, to, on one hand, dumb you down a bit, stop uh, impulsiveness and anxiety, create an uncontrollable situation when you've lost the plot. And I don't think they do you a lot of good. I have a, a, a colleague who is a toxicologist in Wollongong University, um, and she figures that uh, the pills don't help more than about 10% of people that have post-traumatic stress disorder. The second treatment is cognitive behaviour therapy under uh, properly qualified psychotherapists, say psychiatrists and some psychologists. I've actually seen CBT at work. It is uh, gruelling. It is lengthy in application for very serious cases. So I've been the benefit of watching the product of uh, cognitive behaviour therapy at, um, at a hospital in Wollongong where people go for six to eight months for treatment. Now, not everybody is that serious that they require eight months in hospital to be treated. We say that the worst thing you can do for your PTSD is to drink a lot of alcohol. Alcohol is not good for exercising control in these conditions and yet we know that, particularly in veterans and uh, first responders in uh, other callings, drinking a lot of alcohol to drown the demons uh, is a common approach, but it's not good. Mm. Tools like music, meditation, yoga, all of those things designed to settle your mind. And we should never, ever forget that being able to talk to people about your condition in a frank and open way is fundamentally very helpful because you you uncover a few things. Firstly, you're not Robinson Crusoe. There are other people out there with serious stories and their stories can help you understand your own condition and it can help them too. And that's why we talk about the fearless national conversations. We think having a national conversation about this issue And exposing it and giving it a voice is a really important objective. How did you get introduced to the idea of using psychedelics to treat PTSD? Well, there are uh, just two avenues into that. When I started my adventure, I consulted with uh, a serious world expert called Professor Maxwell Bennett, who set up the Sydney Brain and Mind Centre. And it was Max who told me about brains and how they work and and what goes wrong with post-traumatic stress disorder particularly. And secondly, there's an organisation being set up in Melbourne called Mind Medicine Australia and their objective was to promote the use of psychedelics in dealing with mental health conditions. 
and it was Simon Longstaff from the St James Ethics Centre in Sydney who put me up for that. So I did some research. I asked some questions of people like Max Bennett and to my amazement thought, wow, this is really fascinating stuff given what I knew about post-traumatic stress disorder and this issue of how do we cure it rather than simply control it. Professor Jim Legopoulos at the um, Sunshine Coast uh, Neuroscience and Mind at Thompson Institute, he's the director there. He is the one who said to me, without psychedelics, we have no potential cure for post-traumatic stress disorder. So he sees this as very important. When you see the results of the use of psychedelics, proper use of psychedelics, uh, that six to eight months I talked about of cognitive behaviour therapy can be reduced into a few hours. Uh, More than that, rather than having to take a whole suite of pills, some people uh, might say, I am actually in remission. I no longer feel the effects of my post-traumatic stress disorder. And that makes me feel so much better about my life and about what I'm doing that it's unbelievable. They're currently not legal. They're not able to be prescribed for clinical use in Australia, this range of of drugs. But if they were, what kind of setting might they be administered in? I mean, what's happening in other countries in, say, the the UK or Israel, where there is medical use of psychedelics permitted? How are they administered? Yeah, look, it's, um, they can only be seriously administered to deal with these issues under proper supervision, and that, that normally involves two people, and, and we talk about them guiding you through the therapy, having administered a dose of one of the psychedelic substances. That is a journey because the psychedelic substance is going to release the brain and its neural pathways in ways that we can't do any other way. So the the people who take the sufferers through the process have a very important role to guide the development of, of what's going on and to make sure things don't go out of control. I don't think we're going to be able to go to the GP to get this. This will be highly, if you imagine, highly specialised places where The expertise needs to live inside and um, people will need to be referred. So it's a combination of of these medicines and then highly specialised therapy or or psychological work with the patient so that they're, as I understand it, able to revisit those really traumatic moments which their defences have have built up a wall against and allows them, uh, allows a patient to to try and reprocess or acknowledge what's happened to them in in a way that's just too horrible if they're not being assisted medically. Yeah, that's a very good summary, Sarah, because when I saw the cognitive behaviour therapy, that's what was going on there. It was getting the sufferer to revisit the source of trauma and go through the detail and recall it all, to break down the barriers that had been set up inside the brain to protect that person from knowing all this detail. Well, with the use of a psychedelic substance, you can do this in hours. You know, it it is quite remarkable, the difference. Do you know anyone personally, Chris, who's had their PTSD eased by the use of psychedelics? Well, I sat next to a young man 10 days ago at the Palace Theatre here in Canberra, uh, and he took himself off to Peru to get access to the psychedelics. And um, he'd been a former Air Force person. And, uh, you know, he told me, uh, I I can't believe the difference. It it is fantastic 
what happened to me. He certainly was very emphatic about the difference it had made to his life and he spoke to the audience in the theatre at the time about his experience. Uh, and, I, I, and I think it was, it was very impressive because it was real life. There was a real person in the room and afterwards a lot of people spoke to him in that audience. Mm. Has there been pushback from medical groups like the AMA or from psychiatrists who, who maybe are, are unsure or unconvinced about the, the use of psychedelics in treating these kind of complex mental health issues? Oh yes, I think uh, not everybody's not everybody's in the wheelbarrow. There are people that um, are concerned about the potential risks, but you know, I, I would simply say that I've spent my whole life dealing with risk and think I understand it pretty well. There may be uh, one or two risk issues, but uh, if we can imagine that seventy-five, eighty percent of our sufferers from post-traumatic stress disorder can actually be in remission from PTSD, I, I, I think it's breathtakingly important to think about this in terms of better family life, better wellness at work, better productivity, um, better people, to be honest. Mm. To me, it's a no-brainer. But I also think um, the authorities in Australia, we have a, a system for making the necessary changes to our health schemes, if required. I think here, um, here's an opportunity for the TGA to move psychedelic substances from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8 and allow more research to go on. We're not talking about letting this out as a recreational drug or anything like that. We're talking about moving from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8 so that we can start doing a lot more research in this country because I would like to think Australia could lead the world in delivering great results. Have any of your own mates from the military been surprised to see you become an advocate for psychedelics? Look, there have been one or two messages telling me I don't know what I'm talking about, but most people who have worked with me know that, you know, I spent my last 10 years in the military being an agent provocateur. <laughs> I am inclined to get out there and push the thing along, and so those people wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I wonder, it doesn't seem, um, we were talking at the beginning of the conversation, your early interest in brain surgery, and I suppose mm. your early exposure to the trauma of, of mental illness with your mum. Maybe this, mm. this work brings some of those experiences and, and interests together. Yes, it does. And uh, I can say that on, the, on my board of post-traumatic stress disorder, Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, everyone has a story. We're very serious about creating the networks in which people who either live with or suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder can talk to each other. So let's imagine the sufferers, um, their partners, their kids, they can actually talk to each other about their situation and try to figure out better ways of managing their lives and getting more value from them. Chris, it's been fascinating to hear your story. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a wonderful opportunity. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.